This morning's sermon passage comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Thank you, Dustin. Good morning. Good to see everyone. I'm Stephen Carlson. I'm one of the elders here. I'm pinching for Jamie today, who's out of town. And uh, he and his family will be on vacation next week, and Austin will be pinching for him next week. But uh, we're going to continue our um, series in the book of Hebrews. So if you turn there to Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be looking at the passage that was just read. We've been talking a lot about angels the last few weeks, and this will be the uh, climactic argument of the writer about angels and um, Jesus' superiority over them. Our first point is coming from verses 5 to 8, glory lost. So let's pick it up there in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The writer has mentioned uh, the world to come several times already. And in order to get a running start, I'd like to back up and look at these. Go back to chapter 1. In the prologue, verse 2, it says, But in these last days he has spoken us to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through also whom he created the world. What we have here is a backward glance and a look forward. Jesus is the creator. There are four specific passages in the New Testament that tell us this. God the Son created the universe. And this is one of them. He's the one that started everything. But he's also going to be the one to inherit everything. And this is a forward glance to the time when Jesus comes back and rules and reigns over all. He is going to inherit everything that he has created, no longer marred by sin because of his redemptive power. Also, in verse um, 8, there's a reference to that verse, that uh, coming kingdom, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the Father says of the Son, the scepter of brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then in verse 13, a more specific reference to what Christ will do when he returns. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has a lot of enemies. He's had enemies from the moment, from the moment he came into the world. And the... Uh, 
sad and terrifying thing is, many of them remain enemies. And when they do so, they're going to be judged by God, by Jesus himself, when he returns. And there's another more specific reference to this in chapter 2. Pick up there in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Notice that the writer here doesn't even take the time to answer the question because the answer is obvious. No one will escape. If you neglect the salvation provided in Jesus, in Jesus alone, there is no escape from the coming wrath of God. That's the universal testimony of the scripture. That's the emphasis of the New Testament time and time again. That there is going to be a day of coming wrath against sin. And either Jesus is your sin bearer or you will bear the penalty of sin yourself. And this is not a very popular subject, but it's an extremely important one. And because it's such a terrifying thing, we have to be careful. We have to be faithful in making sure people understand what we're saying, what the scriptures say that God is going to do to those who reject his son. And now we come to the fifth reference to the world to come, as he puts it there in verse 5. And by my count, there's 24 more in the rest of the book. This is a theme that permeates the entire book. So pick up there in verse 5 again. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. He's already spoken about it, and he's speaking about it again here. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? The climactic argument about Jesus' superiority over the angels comes right here in this passage, where he quotes Psalm 8. It's a psalm of David. Uh, Verses... uh, Got to give me a large print Bible. I'm getting old. Boy, these numbers are really small. <laughs> Verses 6 to 8, quote Psalm uh, 8, 4 to 6. And that entire psalm is a psalm of praise to Yahweh of, because of his creative power. The verses before this in the psalm talk about David saying, I behold the works of your hands, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And I feel really, really small. And just think of today, modern science is able to tell us a whole lot more about the vastness of this universe than David knew. But even he got a sense of it. Going up on his palace on the roof and looking up on a dark night at all the stars. And he felt so insignificant, so tiny. You know, the science tells us today that there's one trillion, trillion stars. That's a one followed by 24 zeros, in case you're counting. <laughs> I got to wonder, who counts all those stars? And how did they do it? Must have been a really boring afternoon, but 
A trillion, trillion stars. Our universe is so big, they have no idea where it ends. And here we are, one tiny individual, each of us, on one little tiny planet, in a relatively average solar system, in a relatively average galaxy, among trillions of galaxies, why in the world do we make any difference at all? You know, and that's precisely what the scientific community wants you to think. The Big Bang evolution theory is, you don't matter. You're just a cosmic accident. The Big Bang occurred, evolution occurred, and here we are. You're born, you live, you die, you're gone. Scriptures teach us something very, very different. That is a lie straight out of the left outside of hell. By the way, the left side of hell is worse than the right side of hell, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> but David knew better. Why did he know better? Because he had the book of Genesis. Psalm 8 is a poetic celebration of the creation account in Genesis 1. Look, notice what he says. What is man that you are mindful of, or the son of man that you think of him? And this is, this is parallelism. The word man and the phrase son of man refer to humanity. I know we, we often think of the son of man as uh, the way Jesus referred to himself in the Gospels. Uh, but here, and the ESV is correct in not capitalizing the word son because this is a reference to humanity. And this is the way parallelism worked in the Old Testament. Um, for instance, in the book of Numbers, the prophet says, Who is the Lord? He is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent. And several dozen times in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is referred to as the son of man by God. So this is just two different ways to refer to humanity. And David says, why do you even think about us? Why do you care? But then he answers his own question based on Genesis 1. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. This is why we matter. This is why we have significance. Because God created us that way. He created us in his image and likeness. And this is probably the way that the writer here in, uh, well, David was referring to uh, that as honor and glory. What a great honor for God to create us in his image and likeness. What does that mean? Image means that you are God's representative. When God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the Garden of Eden to be his representative to rule over his creation. Likeness means relationship. We are the only creatures in the universe that can have a relationship with God. And those two things together indicate responsibility. What we do, what we think, how we act does matter. These things are true because God created us this way, in his image and likeness. He gave us glory. He gave us honor there with our original parents in the Garden of Eden. Commanded them to rule over it. Rule over everything he created there on planet Earth. And what should have happened 
Was it Adam and Eve? Lived happily ever after. They had children, no sin in the world, perfect harmony, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with their environment. But something went terribly wrong and destroyed all of that. And it's called sin. The joy of reading chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis is marred by Genesis chapter 3 when they did exactly. There was only one way to sin. Can you believe that? Think of that. There was one way to sin. And they found it. They both ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and plunged the entire human race into sin, and all those relationships were destroyed. They were separated from God. They were going to experience death. They were separated from each other. Their relationship was ruined with each other. They hid it from each other as well as from God. God cursed the ground because of sin, brought thorns and thistles to challenge just their survival. It was horrible. Rebellion against God brought destruction of everything God had given them. David sees what God had done for our original parents here. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have put in subjection everything under his feet. Everything God had given Adam and Eve, the entire planet, ruled over the entire planet, was, had been destroyed. Everything has to be earned, had to be, has to be difficult, because sin and death have entered the world. But notice what he says now in verse 8. Now, in putting thing, everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Original humanity, Adam and Eve, there was nothing God did not put under their control on planet Earth. But, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's not that way anymore. Something went terribly wrong, and it's called sin. And man was absolutely helpless to do anything about it. But God can, and God did. And this takes us to point two, glory regained. I was tempted to use the wording of uh, the great poet John Milton, paradise lost and paradise gained back in the 17th century, but because the word glory here occurs in the text, I decided to go that way. But the idea is still the same. What we had gained, what we had in the Garden of Eden through our original parents was lost through sin and death. And now 2,000... I was thinking of the time of Christ. <laughs> Over 6,000 years later, we don't have it. They lost it. We still don't have it. The writer says, we don't see it now, and we still don't see this. What has happened? How are we ever going to gain what God has given us? Through Jesus. That's in verse 9. 
But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And here's our reference to the angels. Just as Adam and Eve were created a little lower than the angels, and here again there's this, this hierarchy that is part of Jewish and Christian teaching. There's God, then there's the class of angels that he created, and then there's humanity. And part of the reason that uh, the writer is arguing this way about the angels is because if you can demonstrate that a person, a man, is greater than the angels, then the only conclusion you can come to is that he is God too. And that's who Jesus is. He's 100% human, 100% God. He's as fully human as you and I, and he is fully God as the Father. Sinless. Only he can do what needed to be done about sin. He himself, the Son of God, the Creator. Remember chapter 1 in the prologue, it says that he created the world. The Creator became part of his creation. He became a man so that he could die for man. In order to redeem man, a man had to die. But in order to pay the proper penalty, he had to be deity. And we'll get to, get to that more in a moment. But notice verse 9 again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Notice he now is crowned with glory and honor. Because of his death and resurrection, he is the one who has the glory of God and is going to bring that to us. In fact, what God has done in Christ actually places those of us who believe in Jesus in a higher status than Adam and Eve were. We're redeemed. We're going, we are going to inherit everything. Not just the planet Earth. Everything. Because Paul says in Romans 8 that we are heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. Jesus is going to inherit everything. And because of that, we are going to inherit everything with him. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of Jesus' death. That's the power of salvation. Notice how he does this, though. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Remember, this is all about grace. Grace isn't just unmerited favor. That's true, but it doesn't go far enough. Grace is unmerited favor to an enemy. Making him a friend. Making him a child of God. Sons and daughters of God. See, unmerited favor to an enemy emphasizes our sinful status before God. Most people don't think of themselves as enemies of God. If you go out and take a poll and you say, do you consider yourself an enemy of God? Who's going to say yes to that? But Paul did. Romans 5. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. 
And if there is an omnipotent being who calls you an enemy, I think it's a good idea to find out how to get on his good side. Because you ain't going to win that battle. This is grace that sent Jesus lower than the angels in his humanity, but still full deity so that he could pay the penalty of sin and death. That through the suffering of death, he might taste death for everyone. Now I want to pick up, uh, Austin is going to preach next week on the rest of this chapter, but I'm going to steal a couple of words from his passage next week to kind of round this out. Uh, I do want to point out that in verse 16 is the only reference in the rest of the chapter to angels. And he points out, and the writer is simply saying, Jesus didn't have to save the angels. He had to save lost people. He had to save human beings. And I'll address more of that in a moment as well. But I want to pick up, pick up the one phrase in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. I want you to notice this. Jesus isn't bringing everyone to glory. He's only bringing sons and daughters of God to glory. Only those who believe in him. This is why the concept that is mentioned in verse 3 is so important. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You won't escape. You will not escape the wrath of God if you reject the only sacrifice for sin that God provided. Sin has a penalty that you and I simply cannot pay. The original audience here, the, the people that the writer was, wrote this letter for, Jewish Christians. They were influenced by Jewish thought that gave angels much too influence, much too uh, high an influence in their life. They knew, for instance, that, in fact, Paul confirms this in Galatians 3.19, that angels in some way helped put the law of Moses into effect with Moses as the mediator. And because they contributed to, in some way to the uh, ratification of that covenant, they seem to have started do- toying with the idea that they needed angels on their side in the new covenant too. And he's saying no. In fact, when he gets to the detailed analysis of the new covenant in chapters 8 and 9, angels aren't anywhere to be found. They make no contribution whatsoever. And let's remember that. Because salvation is by the grace of God... And because it is a gift, it means we do absolutely nothing to earn it. In fact, trying to earn it means you can't have it. You have to stop trying to earn it before you can receive the free gift of God's grace. And so when we look at verse 9 and 10 and see Jesus dying and bringing many sons to glory, why was that death necessary? Why, have you ever thought about how our, the irony here, that death 
defeated death? What happened in Jesus' death that defeated it? Declared by his resurrection, but something happened on the cross that defeated death when Jesus died. And this is the term I would like to pick up from verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I don't know about you, but propitiation is not a word I use in everyday language and everyday conversation, but it's a very important, powerful word. And here's the definition for you. Propitiation, the appeasement and removal of God's wrath against sin through the appropriate sacrifice. Two major ideas in this word every time it's used. Averting divine wrath and sacrifice. Do you see the problem? Sin is an offense against an infinite God. And the problem is you and I are finite. We can do nothing to pay for an infinite penalty. That's why work salvation is, is ridiculous. You cannot pay an infinite debt. I cannot pay an infinite debt. What it required is a God-man. One who was a man so he could die for man, and one who was God so he could pay the infinite penalty that sin deserved. And that's what this word refers to, propitiation. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He made an infinite payment for sin so that you, by faith in him, can be forgiven. And when you look at it that way, you realize there is absolutely nothing that we could do to earn that. Angels aren't going to help. Church membership isn't going to help. No kind of good works is going to help. Jesus doesn't want you to try to help. He's already done it. The song has already, says it well. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Now, in... Uh, Wrapping up this uh, section on angels, I thought it might be helpful to kind of backtrack a little bit and round out what the scriptures as a whole teach us about angels. So <clears throat> here's a few things to consider. Because angels exist, God created them. God created all the angels. And at the time he created them, they were all sinless and holy. God created the angels prior to Genesis 1.1. We know this from Job chapter 38, which says that the angels witnessed God's creation of the universe, and they sang and rejoiced over what they saw. Boy, that must have been some sight. To witness God's creation of the universe in those six days, they were already there. They already existed. 
And apparently, God created all the angels in mass. In other words, he created them all at the same time. Since they are spirit beings, angels do not reproduce. Now, I know this next one is going to mess up a lot of great movies and TV shows, but angels do not become human beings. Never have, never will. They have taken on human form, but that's very different from taking on flesh, becoming an actual human being. Jesus, the Son of God, did that. No angel has ever become a human being. On the flip side of that, humans don't become angels. Now, I know that messes up It's a Wonderful Life and some other movies and TV shows. and I've probably seen that show a hundred times, and that's not an exaggeration. That's one of my favorites, and I just kind of have to put my intellect on the shelf when that happens. Old Clarence trying to get his wings. Um, doesn't work that way. Uh, it's a fantasy, so just keep it there. By the way, Lord of the Rings is a fantasy too. I don't... I really messed up somebody just now there, didn't I? <laughs> some people are going to need some counseling this week. One of the indications of that there's a sharp distinction here between humans and angels is that the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3 that we as the redeemed of God are going to judge the unredeemed and we're going to judge angels. Be great if he'd explain that a little better, a little more, but he doesn't. Somehow, some way, that's going to happen. That's part of our inheritance with Christ in the future. Satan and demons, oh, excuse me, prior to Genesis 1-1, a third of the angels were led by Satan in rebellion against God. That's according to Revelation 12, 3 and 4. The New Testament refers to these fallen angels as unclean spirits or demons. And so since a third of them followed Satan, that means there's twice as many good guys as bad guys, so that's good. Satan and demons are beyond redemption. You see, Jesus did not become an angel to die for angels to redeem angels. The moment Satan and the demons rebelled against God, they were eternally doomed. There's no redemption provided for them. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 25 that the lake of fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The holy angels, the good guys, they always do God's bidding. They never sin. They never make a mistake. And remember that since they are spirit beings, both angels and demons, they exist in an invisible metaphysical reality. They can You know, as I said earlier, angels have taken on human form and entered into the physical world, but that's only on occasion when God allows that. But there's an unseen war going on between those two forces, the the holy angels and the demons, that we mostly are unaware of. And there's only a few glimpses of this in the Bible. Daniel 10, if you want to read that, Daniel 10 is the clearest passage that talks about that conflict. It's true. 
Angels are amazing, powerful, and very interesting creatures, but they do not deserve our praise and worship, and they don't want it. Satan wants it, and he wants you to worship anything but the one true God, but the holy angels worship the one true God just as you and I are called it on to do as well. And in fact, according to 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, the angels are fascinated by redemption. It says the angels long to look into this salvation. They can't experience it. They saw the Son of God become a man. They were probably stunned. They saw him die. They saw him come back from the dead. And they see this redemption that he provided. And they're fascinated by it, try to understand it more. And they serve those who are redeemed. But let's remember... Angels make no contribution to our salvation. Angels make no contribution to the new covenant, even though they did the old covenant in some way. They do not the new covenant. When the writer of Hebrews gets around to talking about the new covenant and death, chapters 8 and 9, angels are nowhere to be found. They're not needed. Jesus and Jesus alone did this. Jesus and Jesus alone paid that propitiation. It's not there anymore, but you know what I'm talking about. He's the one that paid that ultimate penalty of sin, that infinite debt that we owed God. He and he alone is the one who did that. He and he alone is our intercessor and our mediator between us and God. It is he that we come to the Father in prayer. And this is the reason that we as God's people When we come together, we remember his death. We remember that propitiation in the ceremony of the Lord's Supper. The the Lord's Supper is a celebration. It's a time of remembrance of what Jesus did for those who have faith in him. And if you know Jesus, we invite you, even if you're not a member of this church, to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. But because it's for God's people, those who have faith in Jesus, if you do not, we ask you not to partake. But those who are going to pass out the Lord's Supper elements, please come on up forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love to us, for the power of Jesus' death as a satisfactory payment for the horrible, infinite penalty that sin deserved. We thank you for the privilege of coming to you in the name of Jesus. We ask your blessing on our time together as we remember what he has done for us. For it's in his name I pray.